Hey, this is Howard Jacobson, and I am joined via Skype today by Ellen Jaffe-Jones. Hello, Ellen. Hey, Howard. How are you? Awesome. So you, you're down in Florida? Yes. Okay. So, um, so we're doing, we're doing this at the same time zone, which is always, always fun. Um, so I wanted to, uh, to talk to you because of a couple of really interesting books you've written. And the more I've read about you, the more interesting, um, you and your life become. So, uh, you're the author of, uh, a well-known book, uh, Eat Vegan on $4 a Day, a game plan for the budget, budget conscious cook. And more recently, uh, a book with an awesome cover. <laughs> Called Kitchen Divided, which kind of looks like the cover of one of those um, those sitcoms or you know those those uh, you know romantic comedy movies where there's a there's a guy and the woman and they're kind of um, you know in sort of a quasi martial arts position in the kitchen, clearly um, at odds. And this is about vegan dishes for semi-vegan households. So I want to talk, talk about both of those and about athletics and anything else that that floats your boat. So welcome, Ellen. Thank you so much for having me, Howard. Yeah, so so let's start with uh, with just your story. So, did you grow up a uh, plant based vegan athlete? <laughs> I wish. Although I think part of what motivates me is that I did grow up, and I, I sometimes joke and say maybe the sickest family in America. Uh, we grew up from uh, a block away from the best bakery in St. Louis, and a morning without deep, gooey butter cake was a morning without sunshine. Mm-hmm. And my mom, aunt, and both sisters would go on to have breast cancer. We were part of the original breast cancer gene studies. And I personally don't know if I have the gene, wouldn't do a thing differently if I did. Uh, but also my relatives, uh, my, all of my family members in my uh, immediate family have had heart disease and diabetes. And my oldest sister, the one who hadn't had breast cancer yet, uh, had diabetes and heart disease for much of her life, goes into the hospital for routine. Don't you love that word? Herniated disc surgery and flat lines on the table because of a compromised immune system and gets MRSA that lodges in her neck, and she's now a quadriplegic for the rest of her life in a nursing home. So my parents were so sick and diseased by the time I had kids. I was the youngest in my family by a long shot, and my parents couldn't lift my kids, let alone babysit them. And so because I waited a long time to have my three daughters, I want to make sure that if I am so lucky to have grandkids that I am present for them in a way that my family never could be. I think entire generations are losing each other and don't even know it, don't even recognize it. Mm. And that's, you know, that's so uh, poignant because, you know, when, when you talk to people who are sort of resigned about their eating habits, one of the things you hear, they're, they're sort of, sort of jolly about it, like, hey, I'll live fast, I'll die young, but I'm, you know, I'm going to enjoy life to the full. And it's such a short-sighted view, like not, not judging or telling them what their values should be, but just when you, when you sort of get in touch with the big picture, like, do you want to be able to see your grandchildren, lift them up, walk down the aisle at their wedding, uh, be a positive role model for them? When you start getting people to think in those longer-term vistas, the the motivation can completely change. That's really true. And I can't tell you from my perspective of having been the youngest child, I was around in the hospital visits and we would joke that uh, whatever particular disease that family member was in for was paying for the wing of the hospital that we were sitting in. Or we would joke that that particular relative's disease 
where we were visiting the hospital was the site of our current family reunion. And, you know, people joke about these things because it's the only way they know how to deal with it. And to me, it was always very sad. I mean, I grew up very close and personal, watching my sister go through chemotherapy twice within the period of uh, 18 months and watching my sister right before she went into, my other sister to watch her before she went into have her chest cracked open from heart disease. And the derailment of health, people don't understand that once you get one of these diseases, all these dots are so connected and it's the quality of life. And you think, oh yeah, you know, so I'll go and get the surgery, get the drug and I'll be just fine. But generally speaking, you are affected in ways you can't even imagine. Mm. All right, so so let's talk about like what happened to to make you so weird. Like, (laughs) (laughs) thank you. And and by that I mean, by that I mean, you didn't accept the situation at some point as normal. So you know, you've got a family with bad genes. This is the way we eat. This is what happens to us. I'm just going to go along with the pack. What happened to to help you kind of break out of that paradigm? Well, being the youngest child, um, and by a long shot, my sisters are 9 and 11 years older than me, and so I was always considered the black sheep because I had a career, and I what I ended up doing was becoming a television investigative reporter for 18 years in Miami and St. Louis, and I won two Emmys in the National Press Club Award, and it, by the time I got to St. Louis as a TV reporter, which was my hometown, I uh, was eating trash like most TV reporters do. You're always in a rush to go somewhere. You're lucky if you ever have time to eat, and it's usually a drive through And I found myself one day, we had a snowstorm, and we the, the station made us stay at the station for a couple of days. They brought in this highly salted, processed cold cuts and foods, and I almost died of a colon blockage. I collapsed uh, in the bathroom. They had to take me to the emergency room. Doc said, we've never seen a colon blockage in somebody so young and one that is so large you're going to need to be on medications the rest of your life. And I'm going, whoa. It was the same year my sister got breast cancer, and I thought, I am way too young to be on medicine the rest of my life. So I ran to the health food store, read all five books on fiber because that's all there there was at the time, the book by Dennis Burkett, who Dr. McDougall often refers to as uh, what turned him on to starting to eat this way and look at this as a way of helping people reverse disease. So I changed my diet at that point. First, I went macrobiotic because I thought that would be also a good cancer prevention kind of diet, and it was widely touted to be effective back in those days, and then I went vegetarian and then eventually vegan. So that's been my journey. So what, about what year was that? Uh, 1980. Okay. So two years, basically, I've been doing this. And it was also the same year I, I really started getting into running. I stopped running when my kids were small because they didn't have the fancy running strollers that they do now. But uh, when we moved to Florida, the kids are uh, gone from the house, and uh, I could really get more into the whole running thing. I found that... Um, just by showing up in my age group, I was starting to win races for my age group. And I have, since that's all happened, um, I have placed in 55 5K races or longer since 2006. I am seventh in the U.S. in the National Senior Games in my age group for the 1500. I am tenth in the 400 meters. 16th in the 200 meters, and 19th in the 100 meters. And one of the reasons, I competed in the National Senior Games this this summer, just a couple of months ago, and what was interesting is that in the 100 and the 200 meters, 
Uh, lots of people competed in those races. Those were on day one. Then the 400 meters by day two and the 1500 meters by day three. As I was standing at the check-in table, a lot of women were scratching because I believe they didn't have the recovery and uh, the lack of pain that I did on day three to continue to compete. So I really credit a plant-based diet with being able to uh, allow me to do all these things. And the other thing I've done, I did my first marathon in 2010, and the publisher of the running journal for which I write a monthly column says it's really rare, vegan or not, for anybody with my sprint times to have ever completed a marathon. So again, I am crediting a low-fat plant-based diet with uh, giving me my running life back. Mm. And um, I would think that you know the plant-based life would be most advantageous for endurance, as opposed to you know sprinting, where you can sort of just do you know train a lot with with technique. Um, so I, I guess you can you can see that on the third day at the fifteen hundred that uh, that your recovery is is sped up, maybe less inflammation, uh, less less body work to have to process the the, the fuel you're putting in. That's absolutely true. And I think the other part of this, and, and there aren't, I don't know of any other vegan sprinters, male or female. I'm sure they're out there, but uh, in my course of doing this for about the year, the last year and a half, I really haven't met anybody on the state. I had to, to get to nationals, I had to compete at the county level, finish in the top uh, three, and then at the state level, finish in the top four to be able to qualify for nationals. And uh, I just haven't met anybody in, in the course of doing that who is vegan. However, I will say, because I have trained, and I think this is kind of rare, that I have trained for both a marathon and the 100 meters, the sprint races are much more demanding and there is much greater potential for injury than doing endurance. Why? Because when you're doing a 5K race or anything longer, you can slow down. You can stop. You can walk. A sprint, you just keep going. And parts of my body hurt after doing uh, the national games that had never hurt before. And I really felt like I was pushing the envelope, that I was this close from tearing something or um, just really this explosive energy that you have to have. And where that comes from, I don't think I could have done it on a meat diet. The other thing is that... Uh, as, I'm, as I'm sure you're familiar with, even the Arthritis um, Foundation in its national publication called Arthritis Today says if you want to reduce arthritic inflammation, cut out the meat. And I think uh, I kind of joke that one of the reasons I do so well is because I just show up. And part of that is that many of my meat competitors, I think, are experiencing, well, I know they are experiencing the beginning stages or more advanced stages of arthritis, and they just can't do what they used to do. Right. Well, I was talking a few months ago with uh, Ruth Heydrich, who was saying that you know she wins most of her races just by showing up because these, exactly. she's, she's the only one in her age group at this point. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and, you know, when I did the Palm Beaches Marathon in 2010, I was the fifth oldest female to finish. So same thing. What does it tell you? Um, I, I think we do just experience not only the recovery, but the lack of problems that start from the head all the way down to the toes. And uh, I have fallen in a couple of races that have been crowded and there were speed bumps I didn't see kind of thing because I'm looking ahead. And people who saw my physical injury, which is blood gushing out, said, wow, you should have broken something if you had osteoporosis. I mean, that's another thing that if you do it right, get plenty of sunshine, do um, weight training, 
You just don't have osteoporosis, which is something that our meat counterparts are often dealing with, and, and it keeps them from preventing, uh, it keeps them from competing. So, so people who are listening to this, and I, I, I don't yet know, we, we're, we are recording the video, so I don't know how people are going to be uh, taking this in, but everyone's wondering how old you are. <laughs> so uh, if you, could, could you tell us? I'm 60. So when I finish, when I say I finished seventh in the U.S. in my age group in the 1500 meters, that's the 60 to 64 year old age group. And, uh, part of the reason that, <laughs> that fan club is uh, all excited back there. Um, a part of the reason that I, uh, wanted to compete in the national senior games as most runners uh, kind of think in this mentality is that I'm in, I'm the youngest in my age group right now because they're five year age group increments. So mm. I had the best chance of doing as well as I could. The other thing that was interesting about the national games is that when I was getting ready to do the 1500 meters, a woman comes up to me and she goes, Ellen Jones, cookbook author, right? And I go, yeah. And who are you? And why do you know this? And she goes, I always check out my competition before I do these events, and I'm going, whoa, you are taking this way too seriously. And as I put on my my reporter's hat and started asking women, I found out that most of them are full-time athletes. They do this at my age and older, full-time. They've hired coaches. One of them had a coach with her from UCLA's track team, and I'm going, whoa, I am just a weekend warrior. My main thing is writing books and talking to people about the joys of eating plants and how it can really improve your health and reverse disease. I don't do this full time. So uh, I was even more pleased as a result of finding that out, that um, just even doing this on a part-time kind of half-baked basis, I I could do this well. So I'm hoping that others will be inspired by my story. You know, I am not, I don't have any desire to do a triathlon. I don't have any desire to do an ultra marathon. Just keeping fit so that I can be around for the grandkids and finish without injury until I'm 100 is totally the goal. Awesome. And I guess in in five years, you know, there'll be less and less competition from, uh, from the omnivores. Yeah, and, you know, with even the local running races, I'm now starting to win the Senior Grandmasters Award, which is the award for the decade. So I've gotten three of those in just the, the past uh, year. So I, I'm really starting to see that happen. And I don't, I, I always say I'm not competitive. I just do this to show you can do it just on plants. Mm-hmm. And people will come up to me at races as I'm holding a medal or an award saying, oh, you can't eat vegan and run races, or you can't compete in the Olympics on a plant-based diet. And then, you know, I mentioned Carl Lewis, and I, I, you know, I'm sure that others will be coming along because there are so many younger athletes now who understand that a plant-based diet enhances performance. It doesn't make you a weakling. Far from it. Right. Right. So, so in 1980-ish, getting, getting back to your, uh, to your, Transformation. Um, you went first macro and then vegetarian. So v- vegan wasn't really a big thing back then, right? Did you go vegan? At that I time? did. I had some friends, a uh, woman uh, that I befriended and started running with who worked at a health food store. And so she had kind of an inside track even more than I did because she read all the books that came through the store. So before I had children, I was vegan. And uh, then when I had kids, I actually had been told again by doctors, you better do something different, really differently with your life, or you're going to end up like everybody else in your family. A doctor told me, you know, why don't you check out 
that uh, organization, that that nonprofit uh, volunteer organization called La Leche League. They're kind of militant, but they know their stuff. And for those of the listeners who don't know, it is a breastfeeding information and support group. And the research, even at that time, showed that breast cancer incidence was reduced the longer you breastfed your children. And I would later learn, there was research to back this up, that it's actually preventative in female offspring who are breastfed. So very cool stuff. And I, in my usual fashion, I went into that uh, head over heels and I became an accredited La Leche League leader. So I would answer the middle of the night phone calls. Oh, my baby won't nurse, come help. And so I would. And, um, you know, what I found was that this whole concept of species-specific milk was very strong in La Leche League before you had children. But then once you had children, they had a whole series of cookbooks, and they were all about incorporating meat and dairy into your diet. And because I considered them an authority, I thought, well, they must know something. So I went back to... Um, giving my kids dairy because I thought they needed it for the protein. And there just wasn't the information back in those days that there is now that, uh, like the American Dietetic Association says, a plant-based diet is appropriate for all stages of life, including pregnancy and and breastfeeding. And um, that information just wasn't there when I was doing it. So for that period of time, uh, until the kids were older, I then... um, was feeding them dairy. So, and, and, you know, part of the answer when I would go back to the Leche League eventually and say, well, what about this whole concept of species-specific milk? Why all of a sudden, once you give birth, are we supposed to be drinking milk from another species? And their answer was interesting. They had this phrase called, we don't want to mix causes. Breastfeeding is controversial enough. And if we're trying to talk to people about breastfeeding, and you know, so many people are resistant to that, and then we tell them, oh, and by the way, give up meat and dairy, uh, it's just not going to fly. So I, I understand that from a conceptual level, but I'm one of the few voices out there saying, we are the only species that went rogue on our own species milk 3,000 years ago. Somebody looked at a cow or a goat and said, hmm, if we can't find water, maybe that'll work. I mean, who knows why it was ever uh, it became common practice as it was then and has has remained the same. And it's just important to understand that we are the only mammal out of about 5,000 that went rogue on our own species milk. But nutritionally, everything is right there. Once a baby is weaned, we don't uh, have to go back to drinking anybody's milk. Great. So um, your your cookbook career has been, been, um, been, you know, there's... uh, the, the two books that I have, and we'll, we can talk about the third one that's fast-tracked to come out uh, later this year, but they're both sort of, uh, I, I'm imagining, so answering the big objections to people who are like, well, this sounds great, but. So can you talk, talk about the first one about eat vegan on $4 a day. How did, how did that come about, and what, what, what was the impetus? What, what, what did you see as the marketplace need for that information? Well, once I left television, just backtrack a little bit, I spent five years as a financial consultant at Smith Barney. I was actually the number one market performer. I worked with clients who wanted to have uh, animal screens in their portfolio. In other words, they didn't want to invest in companies that tested on animals. So all these dots, again, are connected. And I was actually the number one market performer as a result of, of choosing those kinds of investments because they made sense on a lot of different levels. And, and by, by market performer, you mean actually you made money for your clients as a Yes. As, opposed to, as opposed to like making money for Smith Barney. 
Uh, well, if I made money for my clients, I was making money for Smith Barney. But the corollary is, as I would find after five years, making money for your clients does it is inversely correlated with making money for yourself. Because what it meant is, I didn't uh, sell my widows out of their high coupon municipal bonds and put them in a tech stock that blew up. And I was there during uh, um, uh, 2001, so it was a really tough time to say the least. But uh, you know, all those Wall Street bonuses you heard about a few years ago, not for this cookie. Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, any of that. I never made personally for myself more than $20,000. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So after five years, I joined my husband in his already existing, very successful 20-year-old media training business, called up Dr. Neil Barnard and said, does PCRM, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, need any media training? Obviously, Neil, who is very eloquent, didn't, but uh, he did hire me to work with some of the staff, and that's where I met Dr. McDougall and Colin Campbell and a number of others uh, during my work there. So the seeds were getting planted, and it was a 2008 newsletter that Dr. John McDougall wrote that said he bet that all of the recipes in his books could be made for under $3 a day. And I thought, wow, what if somebody actually crunched the numbers per recipe to show that this was true? So I started keeping track on an Excel sheet of every ingredient I thought that might go in a cookbook. And then I got this great software called Living Cookbook that would crunch the numbers for me. So if I entered the price of oats at a nickel an ounce and I used four ounces in the recipe, it would calculate the cost to 20 cents. So, um, and then I would divide it by the number of servings. So every recipe in Eat Vegan on $4 a day has a cost estimated uh, for the price of that recipe. And just to give you an idea of how long I was working on this, I told you I got the idea in March of 2008 and put it together within the next six months. And I had a wonderful agent who was shopping it, and the original title of the book was Eat Well on $3 a Day. Uh So that tells you how long we had to raise the price for inflation. And there were some people who wanted it to be what we call a backdoor vegan book, like Quantum Wellness and Skinny Bitch, that didn't have the word vegan in it. And there was this... uh, uh, shall we say, lively discussion between myself and others in the publisher about changing the name. But fortunately, about a month before my book came out, Bill Clinton came out of his vegan closet, and all of a sudden, vegan became a very healthy word to use. So uh, in, retrospect, it is, in retrospect, it was a great uh, decision, I think. So that's the story of Eat Vegan. I uh, was really motivated by watching one news story in particular where I saw this morbidly obese woman loading her grocery cart with Twinkies and macaroni and cheese, and the reporter, like I used to be, shoves the microphone into her face and goes, you know, you just can't eat well on a budget or food stamps. And I'm going, tearing my hair out. Yeah, I've done this for 32 years. I've really got to get this book done. So Hmm. that was it. That's interesting because, you know, the the next interview I'm doing is with uh, Dave Simon, who wrote a book called Meatonomics. And, and talking about, you know, all the externalities, like how animal foods are so expensive and yet most of the, most of the costs to us are indirect. Um, right. But you're, you're, you're finding that the choosing, um, I guess maybe, you know, some people call it peasant food, <laughs> like, you know, beans, nuts, seeds, like bulk things, uh, you know, that, that you can actually come close to the price of these heavily subsidized junk foods and animal products? 
Oh, it's totally reasonable. I've even had people come up to me when I talk around the country. I had a guy who said, you know, I work for a monastery and I'm in charge of buying the food. And I'm telling you, I do it under a dollar a day. So I know it's more than, than possible. There are some nonprofit organizations. There's one here in the Tampa area called Feeding Children Everywhere. And for a quarter a meal, they put together lentils, rice, and vegetables. They're dehydrated vegetables in a, in a plastic baggie and ship it over wherever because they wanted to have real food that was being uh, given to hungry children versus some kind of globulated <laughs> soy product. So uh, I know it's it's more than true, but here's what I did. Um, the price of beans just hasn't risen very much over the decades, and I've had a number of people stand up at audiences saying, you know, the price of beans was a nickel 10, 20 years ago. So if you take the price of beans at a nickel an ounce, and you figure you double it in size for a four-ounce serving, so that's a dime a serving versus the cheapest form of hamburger meat, which is seven times more expensive versus beef tenderloin, which is 37 times more expensive. The last time I checked beef tenderloin at the big box store, it was something like a, a dollar 19 an ounce, just hugely expensive versus a nickel an ounce. And when you start doing that kind of math, what I tell people is if you throw out the meat and dairy and replace it with bean protein, then you have all this money left over to buy produce. But also in my book, I talk about how you can join a CSA, a community-supported agriculture farm. And if you volunteer there, and I've done this myself personally and I've seen others do it, you can get a great discount on the share of food that you pick up every week or every other week, or you can even get the food for free. And often, depending how much you volunteer, and often the food is organic. They may not have the certification because it's expensive and political, but if you spend time there, you can see how they get the seeds and see what they do on the farm. So those are all ways that you can figure out how to do this uh, from the produce side, which is going to be the more expensive part of your budget. But the other thing, I, I, I speak all over the country about this. Anywhere I get invited, you know, I tell people I fly for airfare, I couch surf, and I eat on $4 a day, as you know. So I'm all about just trying to get this message out, but it's the cost of disease. I, I crunch these numbers, too, where if you order a $5 hamburger and you figure that the cost of a bypass surgery is $100,000, putting on my financial services hat, if you dollar cost average the $100,000 bypass surgery over the course of your lifetime, depending how many hamburgers you eat, that's really more like a $100 burger or a $1,000 burger. So I think it's important for people to really understand that it's not just simply the cost of the food, but it's that whole idea of you pay the farmer or you pay the doctor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of, like, I would love to see my farmer, you know, drive a BMW. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, you know, like be, be richer than the doctor. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, I, you know if, you, if you have the money, you should certainly be spending it on the highest quality food you can get. Um, now, one, th one, one thing is I wanted to ask you about was like the $5, five cent an ounce beans and the idea of, of organic versus not. So I was just watching the, the documentary, Joe Cross's documentary, Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead. And he had his, you know, he has his guys go juicing. He says the, the juice ingredients were $14 a day at Walmart or $28 a day at the health food store. Um, so what do you, what do you say to people who, um, say, you know, organic food, do we need it? Is it important? Is it worth the premium? Um, what's your, what's your take on that? 
I was a cooking instructor for Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. It's the cancer project for six years before my book came out. And there was one study that uh, I believe they have on their website because they have a whole section of their website devoted to research. But we um, referenced it to this very issue. And the study was that people, it is still better for people to eat conventional fruits and vegetables versus organic than not at all. And if that's the choice you have to make, it's much better to do the conventional produce than be filling that void with meat and dairy because the toxins, the, the fat, the, um, the uh, estrogen-like effects of having various toxins in the animal fat is more concentrated in the animal fat. So, uh, And the animals are probably not eating organic produce, I'm thinking. So uh, you really want to um, eat as low as you can on the food chain. And so I think it's it's more important to get the fruit and the vegetables. I think Dr. McDougal would, would say this is one of those issues that is kind of a, a, a side show, just like uh, I'm not saying that it's not important. Same thing with GMOs, but um, you have to pick your battles and you have to pick your focus. And mine has been the cost. And people have always said, as long as I could remember, oh, it's just so expensive to eat well. And I really just set out to prove that it's that's not true. And people go, they'll often say, ew, are you recommending that we shop at Walmart? And I'm saying, no, I'm just showing that because most everybody lives within an hour of a Walmart, that if you say you can't eat well on a budget, you can find these kinds of foods at these cheap prices at Walmart. And the reality is, one out of six people in this country is already living below the national poverty rate of $23,000 a year. And if you do the math on that, that is $4 a day for food if you figure that a fourth of your income goes to food. So people are already shopping at Walmart. And in my years there, and I have literally spent years tracking prices, you know, one of these, I'm taking pictures with, you know, my smartphone, and uh, I'm sure one of these days I'm going to get thrown out of there. But uh, on the other hand, I am showing that you can eat healthy, even at Walmart or uh, Costco. And uh, in my work uh, in tracking prices there, I will see people just walk into where I am taking pictures, and they'll be on these motorized carts and just hobbling and so frail and feeble. There was one guy ordering fried chicken. He was in a wheelchair, and I'm sure it was diabetic neuropathy. His feet were bandaged from the knees down. And I see these things, and I just want to run up to people and go, hey, there's a great deal on beans two aisles over. Follow me. But I don't do that. But we have such a crisis in this country. So It's so sad. Yeah, well, I, sh- I shop at my local Costco all the time, and I keep thinking it would be a great um, photo project to take photos of people and their shopping carts. I've got that. I've got that. I just don't know what to do. And I use some of it in my slideshow, but sometimes I've had people come up to me and go, what, are you fat shaming? And, you know, you get into this um, sometimes peripheral issues, and I just try and keep what I am talking about on the straight and narrow with how you can save so much money not only at the store, but by avoiding doctors and diseases. Right on. Cool. So, so my takeaway um, before you know giving people the uh, all the information in the book is get your protein from beans and legumes and put the put the money you're saving on meat into produce. Absolutely. And then people go, well, really, where do you get your protein? I don't know if you can see that, but does it look like I have a protein deficiency? And, uh, whether or not you show this video or not, what I just did was uh, flex my biceps. And 
you know, I don't spend hours at a gym. In fact, I spend hardly any time at a gym because I'm out running and then I'm sitting here at my computer with my arms just kind of sagging at my sides typing. So I'm really not getting the best workout I should be getting. But even still, I get plenty of protein. And I always ask audiences, do you know anybody who is diagnosed with a protein deficiency? And nobody will raise their hand. And then I go, do you know anybody who is diagnosed with heart disease, cancer, or diabetes? And everybody raises their hand. So... It's those are the issues we need to be focusing on and trying to and trying to eradicate those diseases because, as you know, so preventable. Right on. Cool. So let's 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 move on to um, kitchen divided. So um, the idea here is that if you are in a what you call a mixed marriage, where yes. uh, where one partner is is vegan or plant based and the other one eats meat, eats dairy. How do you negotiate that? And my, because um, the first question is, you know, I've I've spent a lot of time in the plant-based community, and there's different factions, and I didn't realize kind of how hardcore the vegan faction could be until I went to the Vita Vegan Vita Vegan Con in Portland, which was really like I was shocked. It was all about vegan as opposed to. <laughs> Sorry, so, someone is. <laughs> quietly crawling out, trying not to make, trying not to attract attention. <laughs> That's so sweet. That was my dearly beloved. Uh, not so, the dog. <laughs> I was looking. That's like like the dog from Peter Pan. It looks very sort of humanoid. I could see him leaving, um, but I think he. Okay, whatever. Well, get back back to the kitchen divided. I guess is is he your inspiration for kitchen divided? Yes, totally. <laughs> God love them. I mean, we're both um, TV investigative reporters in Miami, and uh, it's it's this really romantic, made for a movie kind of story. And I'll try and keep it to ten seconds or less. But um, I broke the biggest story of my life in my Miami. Found out the school superintendent was stealing gold-plated plumbing for a summer home, which was just the tip of the iceberg. And uh, the story ignited riots in 1980 in Miami. And I had already turned in my resignation at the the day I broke the story, which was a good thing because I had death threats. But you know, that just gives you an idea. My whole thing is to find the truth about food as it has been for every other story I've ever done. And anyway, we met at a Janet Reno news conference, my husband and I did, and he comes up to me and says, that was a great story, I should have had it. And then um, five months later, we re-met in, at an investigative reporters convention, and we had a five-month relationship back and forth between Miami. He breaks it off, breaks my heart. Never hear from him until 20 years later after I've already gotten married, had kids, divorced. And he says, how about we have lunch? And he says that breaking up with me was the worst mistake of his life. Six months later, we're married on the beach in Florida and living happily ever after. Well, during this period of time, when I worked at Smith Barney, I went off a plant-based diet because um, we had a lot of... Uh, uh, meals, um, lunch, and dinner that were for clients, and we had no control over the food at all. The only choice I had was what topping I wanted on my working lunch pizza. So during this time, I gained 25 pounds. I'm off the plant-based diet. We moved to Florida, found myself in the emergency room a second time facing a hysterectomy, and the doctor said, you need to have one right away. And then... Um, uh, I, my regular OB gets on the phone and says, you know, go back to that plant-based diet and call me in the morning. Three months, uh, three weeks later, all signs of menopause were gone, including the hot flashes, and then that was the last time I had meat and dairy. And so during that period of time where I was working at Smith Barney is the time that Clarence and I reconnected and got married. So 
as I would talk around the country about eat vegan on $4 a day, I had written in my book, it's more important to have somebody who loves and respects you than a clone at the dinner table. And I always ask my audiences, have any of you ever been in a bad marriage? Just saying. And, you know, Clarence and I have been married for 10 years, and other than the food, we agree, it seems, on everything else. We have an incredible lifestyle here in southwest Florida. He's still a writer, writes books. Um, we go sailing. It, everything else is fabulous. And yet he is on some of the medications for preventable diseases that, um, you know, he sees what I do and he just is very resistant. And part of it is that he is 18 years older than me. And sometimes I have found in my life that especially as people age up, it's just harder and harder to change. And I found this when I did cooking classes as well for six years. So I wrote this book with him in mind. It's to help you and, and many others in my audiences, because when I would ask my audiences, how many of you live in mixed marriages, a lot of people would roll their eyes and go, oh, yeah, um, this is just such a struggle. So the recipes in Kitchen Divided are divided into several categories. One, uh, one, one group of recipes are entrees that can be your main dish if you're the vegan and can be a side dish for somebody else uh, in, in your family or surroundings who is not a vegan. Or they can be uh, a main dish that is fine for you as a main dish and they can throw whatever faux meats, real meats, whatever they want to do to it, it's their thing. All the recipes in my book are, of course, vegan. And then some of them are just delicious side dishes that hopefully the, the meat eater will enjoy as well, including desserts that can hopefully appease all the palates. But what I'm finding is that there's so many new vegans now, thanks to the good work of uh, Dr. Campbell and McDougal and, and Neil Barnard, everybody who's been out there singing from this songbook for the past 30 years, and finally they're getting all this great exposure on various uh um, media platforms and getting the word out how healthy and tasty and life-saving all of this can be. But not everybody who goes vegan has their friends and relatives on the same uh, plate with them just yet. In fact, some of them are going, what are you doing? <laughs> and so this book is to try and bridge that gap. And uh, it's very difficult when you have somebody in your house in particular who is not eating the same way you do, whether it's vegan or anything. So I have tips in the book how to structure your kitchen, how to divide your kitchen in a way that is workable for both people or multiple family members if it's a group, and so that you don't feel like you're a short-order cook cooking three different meals and cleaning up twice as many dishes, that kind of thing, which can really add to anger and resentment. Cool. Well, so so when I was, when I was reading it, there, I was I had sort of two contradictory thoughts in my head, ne neither of which are entirely mine. They were sort of you know interjected by people. So I was saying that I was uh, up at this you know vegan conference, and the lang and I was I have never been around like sort of hardcore ethical vegans before. Um, you know, I'm in the plant based world with Dr. Campbell, right? And and so I was I was surprised to discover. That, you know, the way that the way they spoke was, you know, like I eat cruelty free, which, you know, and, and they were talking about meat eating in any form or even dairy as equivalent to slavery. So I'm wondering, you know, as and I don't know your perspective on animal rights and ethics and all that stuff, but it's almost, you know, some part of me was saying, well, isn't isn't a kitchen divided really, you know, like 
we're on the plantation, but I don't have slaves and you do. Like, was, was there was there an ethical issue? And have you found that people who, who read the book sometimes have trouble with the idea of of that kind of tolerance for your partner? Well, here's the thing. Most of us were not born into a plant-based family. We made the decision at some point to go plant-based. If you were single, then you have the option of choosing your future partners to be plant-based or not. But many people I meet decided to do this on their own, already in a relationship or a marriage. Now, if it gets to be too much of an obstacle, certainly divorce is an option. Um, at my last talk, when I, 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 I gave this, um, I gave the talk on Kitchen Divided, the last question was, well, what if you are uh, eating vegan for strictly animal rights reasons? How do you avoid murdering your 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 spouse (laughs) well that's a that's a really good question and the answer is you lead by example and certainly if it bothers you too much divorce is an option but i tell you what when i was dating and, and you know even 10 years ago you didn't have the option of uh you know, the, the various electronic dating websites where you could set up your screen that you are a vegan and you know, hopefully the partners, the responses that you get back from, uh, you know, Harmony or Match.com, whatever they're all called, uh, will allow you to set that screen from day one. But uh, for people who have been in a really awful marriage, sometimes having a partner who is with you 99% of the time or whatever percentage you want to give it is what gives you fulfillment on a daily basis. Um, and I also say to people, you have to, it's the whole serenity prayer thing. You know, you've got to understand what you can change and what you can't change. And, you know, my my parents who went through 64 years of marriage, at, at the 50th anniversary, I asked mom, I said, so how do you get through 50 years of marriage to anyone? And she goes, one word. I said, what's that? She says, tolerance. I go, tolerance of what? And she goes, don't go there. So... <laughs> That's, I gotta tell you, that's the part of the book I quoted to my wife, and we both sort of snorted in, in, in uh, in understanding and, uh, laughter. Yeah, you know, everybody has to make this list. Uh, if you do any kind of personal growth workshops or weekends, as many of us have, you know, they'll always say, throw out the list, live in the moment, live in the here and now. But we do have lists of what we expect from other people. And I think that's in living with somebody who's different from you, whether it's through food choices or whatever, you have to identify where the red line is and what is acceptable. And my book gets into all these different red line categories. So, you know, like, for example, people in the Jewish religion eat kosher, but sometimes they only do it at home, but when they go out, it's, you know, whatever I want to eat kind of thing. So everybody has all these levels of acceptance. And I just want to say about the whole animal rights thing, let me tell you, as a television investigative reporter, I covered some of the worst animal abuse stories you could ever imagine, from puppy mills to the way... Well, I won't get into the details, but just suffice it to say that every video I've ever watched, um, I can relate to being the reporter who was holding the camera or being there in those kinds of awful situations. I, When my babies were young, I took them in my baby carrier and, and protested the Ringling um, circuses. So I've done all that. I have been very involved. And writing my books is just a way of bringing in more and more people. Because here's the deal. When I worked in television news in the newsroom, 
Nobody took PETA seriously unless they did something really outrageous, like at a fur store, you know, they, they would have uh, the protesters in their fur and on a cold January day, nothing else underneath. And that's the way they got the media attention. And I thought, you know, if I attack this from an animal rights perspective, I'm not going to get not only the media attention, but the interest in people taking me seriously, because I saw what news management did with these kinds of animal rights issues. I think that is changing. And I will tell you that Brian Ross, who is was a colleague of mine in Miami when I was there, who now works for ABC, he is the only reporter that I've really seen on the national scene who has taken some of these hardcore animal rights issues and tried to get it into the mainstream media. So I know how hard he's probably had to fight behind the scenes to get these stories to see the light of day because it is very challenging. I have tried to get a cooking show myself personally, and I won't go into the details about this, but when I thought I was close, you know, two Emmys and the National Press Club Award, plus all the cooking experience I've had, you would think that uh, at least I could get some kind of local market interested. But the pushback by meat and dairy advertisers is huge. So um, I just want to say we all do what we can in this in our, in our own little corners to try and use the resources that we have and the understanding that we have. And compassion is something that is very, very necessary, no matter uh, if, if we are vegan or not. And I think um, certainly what's going on in the world today suggests that we all could do a little bit better in eating, um, trying to get ourselves and others around us to eat in a more peaceful and humane way, which may make us hopefully have more compassion toward others. You know, I have so many more questions. I hope I can get you uh, to agree to another session at some point in the near future. I do have to run now. I've got another interview coming up. I have, I have so enjoyed this. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it, Howard, and uh, appreciate all the work you're doing. Good luck to you. Well, thanks a lot. I'll, I'll be in touch on the back channels to, to get, you on, get you on again, and maybe, maybe you can set me up with Brian Ross. I'd love to talk with him as well and see uh, what, uh, what he's up to. Great. Thank so, you, Howard. So, any, so before we go, you've yes. got to, you to tell folks how they can get in touch with you, what you, oh, yeah, are, that, what, uh, what you offer, all, you know, all the, all the yeah, stuff that yeah. helps you be sustainable in your business. How can, how can folks uh, get good stuff from you and give you money? Um, I am reachable on my website, which is vegcoach.com. So nice. contact me through that. And I, I like to say I'm the veg coach and the broccoli rep because who else is? And I also have a Facebook page, Eat Vegan on $4 a Day, about 25,000 fans there. That's really where I spend most of my time just trying to answer questions, not necessarily making any money, but, you know, people starting out on this journey like I did 30 years ago just didn't have the resources and had lots of questions. So I try and be there. If I don't know the answer, I refer them to um, all the other wonderful websites that are out there that can address some of the issues they have. And then um, also I'm on YouTube. That's uh, where I've decided to put my television background to good use. And I do videos from time to time, cooking, uh, as well as just tips on staying fit. And those are really the main places where you can find me. Awesome. Well, so the next call has to be about your next book. So yes. we'll, just, we'll just leave a teaser that it is, uh, it's, it's related to fitness. It is. And I can't, I can't wait to see your take on it and uh, to get the word out. So Ellen Jaffe-Jones, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you, Howard. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye.